This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week, we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. This week, we bring you three women who are all challenging the stories they've been told about themselves at major points in their lives. First up, a story about fighting. Over the past decade or so, mixed martial arts and other combat sports have started to enter the mainstream with the help of organisations like the UFC. So we're taking you to a women's Muay Thai retreat in Victoria, which plans to make the traditionally male-dominated discipline more diverse and inclusive. A curious audience has gathered at the top of the steps of the beach in Victoria's Bellarine Peninsula, gawking at the 24 women having at each other on the sand. Lean back! comes the instruction on the wind. That's if you value your head. Even those women who left a trail of beer bottles from the Airbnb's pool to the sauna in the early hours showed up at 9am, enthusiastically dodging head kicks and trying not to get tangled up in passing dogs. Some have had amateur fights already. Others are so new to Muay Thai that they have to be shown how to wrap their hands. For now... This Muay Thai retreat is the closest that any of us will get to intensive training in Thailand, which is a rite of passage for those who take up the sport. A typical day here in Ocean Grove will consist of pad work, sparring, and some strength training. But there are also plenty of opportunities to let your hair down after the isolation instilled by Melbourne's lockdowns, and that's equally beneficial to well-being. Overseeing the action are pro-fighters Joanne La and Somsurat Rankla, who just days before, many of us crowded into the Melbourne Pavilion to watch in action. They're chalk and cheese, both as people and fighters. In the ring, Rankla is a smiling assassin, technically proficient and relaxed in style. Sabai, sabai, as the tyres say. La may be playful in person, but her ring style is more aggressive. Rankla remembers the first time she saw La fight, climbing on the ropes to posture like a man and being impressed by the fire in her. Though they've fought each other in the past, they teamed up to form JS Muay Thai to introduce women to the fundamentals through courses and retreats like this. The women here are from all backgrounds. My sparring partner this morning is Bridget Jacobson, by day a head of HR, by night an amateur fighter. Susie Zeipt is an instrument scientist. Lauren Smith is a yoga teacher who runs our morning sessions. Ali Cheney works in gender equality and diversity inclusion. Deb Doan is a project manager working in international development who calls herself a workaholic. She decided she'd be best suited to a pastime that's efficient and deadly and has had two amateur fights. During the lockdowns, JS Muay Thai switched to online classes. Many of the camp's attendees credit these sessions with pulling them out of depression and heavy drinking during that period. Or, as one puts it, Netflix and waiting to die. There's almost always a profound reason that someone takes up a combat sport as an adult. 
why else submit to such pressure testing? Angela Edward Hollingdale is in her early 50s. She has narcolepsy and suffered from depression after her brother died in a car accident. As a single mother of three, she felt she'd lost herself. She hired La as a personal trainer to lose weight, then found herself coaxed into Muay Thai classes. She was so nervous on her first day that she threw up. Now she looks right at home. I thought there was no way I could do it, not at my age, she says. I had everything covered up, long pants, long sleeves. The narcolepsy medication had made her pick at her skin, but that's stopped now that she's thrown herself into the sport. Many of the women here were drawn to Muay Thai for the feeling of confidence that a combat sport can provide, particularly sparring, which Rankla and La introduced unusually early on, believing that if well-supervised, it doesn't have to be daunting. Candy No, a physiotherapy student, had been harassed on public transport. Amy Shand, a graphic designer, has someone close to her who, under the influence of meth, can often turn violent. Knowing how to sweep an assailant to the floor feels reassuring, even if she hasn't put it to the test. For La, JS Muay Thai is a personal mission. She took up training to pull herself away from self-medicating her trauma. When she was younger, La moved between 20 domestic violence shelters across different states. She swore to never feel powerless again. I want to create a program for women in shelter homes so that they can feel those connections and the feeling of power, even though it takes time, she says. Because I've seen it firsthand. They go back to the partner because it's all they know, and they don't believe in themselves. Fatefully, two weeks after this retreat, Rankla suffers a devastating injury, tearing her anterior cruciate ligament at the knee. Rankla moved to Melbourne from Thailand for work 15 years ago, and it's here that she took up the sport. In Thailand, Muay Thai was a way to get out of poverty, so not many people did it, she explains. Now 35, with 11 fights to her name, Rankla has made the difficult decision to retire and will devote her time to developing JS Muay Thai. Already she's been a huge inspiration to the women drawn into this community. As Ange Edward Hollingdale says, we've converted our garage into a training area and there are pictures of Joe and Som on the wall. It's great for my teenage daughter to see them as fighters instead of just seeing the Kardashians. That was Inside an All-Female Fight Camp. I thought there was no way I could do it, not at my age, by Jenny Valentish. The reader was Emily Elise. To see photos of the retreat and to read the article, follow the link on the Guardian Australia Reads website. You know, even though I have lived in Australian cities near the coast for most of my life, and even though I like going to the beach, I've never actually been surfing. Sometimes I wonder if I've missed my chance to ever try it. Well, up next, writer Alison Rourke shares her experience with learning to surf in her 50s, and she shows us that when it comes to catching waves, it's never too late to try. A group of surfers riding the break is a quintessential image of Australian summer. I have wished I could be out there on a board with them for as long as I can remember. As a youngster, 
I learned to ride skateboards, boogie boards and to ski. But learning to surf, especially now on the wrong side of 50, seemed out of reach. Still, on a four-week break in a seaside town, I decided to try anyway. The man at the Golden Breed store in Noosa Heads suggested a board that was long, wide and light enough to carry. I told myself that the shop was some sort of sign as my first skateboard, circa 1979, had also been from Golden Breed. A month's rental cost about $350, but buying a board was about $400. So I left the store with a new 8-foot 4-inch foamy named Dark Horse and a pamphlet on surf etiquette. A quick internet search after my purchase told me Dark Horse featured reinforced polyethylene to give stiffness and durability and was designed to withstand heavy Hawaiian conditions, none of which I really needed, or so I thought. In the first year of COVID, I had done a two-hour surfing lesson at Sydney's Manly Beach. The key messages were fairly simple. Try to get from lying down to standing up in one go, the pop-up. Look to where you want to go, lean on your front foot to accelerate and your back foot to brake. Simple, right? The swell at Noosa Heads can be beautiful and great for beginners. With my new rashy, make sure it goes to your elbows or you'll get foamy board burn on your arms, my freshly waxed dark horse, choose the right wax for the condition, cool, warm, tropical, etc., and a leg rope, attach it to whichever foot is at the back of the board, I paddled out. Lane Beachley, I was not. Many wipeouts and a few milliseconds standing on the board made for a fairly exhausting first encounter. The pop-up was hard, very hard, especially when your upper body strength is not what it used to be. Put your hands close together under your body and push up quickly, a friendly surf instructor advised me as I wiped out through the middle of his private lesson with a 10-year-old and never, ever look down. At night, I googled learn to surf videos and practised my pop-up on the carpet. But a few more days in the water got me pretty much nowhere. And then there was the first of three ocean curveballs. Overnight, the beach's gentle, small waves were replaced by eight-foot monsters, courtesy of Cyclone Seth which had descended down the Queensland coast. I'd ridden a boogie board after a cyclone here in the 80s, but this was much more intense. Local surfers said the three days of big waves were some of the best they'd ever seen after a cyclone. The power was enough to dump a huge tree trunk on Noosa's main beach. I stayed firmly on dry land. On the fourth or fifth day, the swell was all but gone and I was back in the water, still struggling with my pop-up. And then, on a single wave I'll never forget, I stood and surfed all the way to the beach. The glide was almost hypnotic. My brain didn't really know how it happened, but my body somehow did. The end of week two brought a second curveball, another cyclone swell this time from Cyclone Cody, two and a half thousand kilometres away, off Fiji, pulsing powerful waves and a strong toe. I took refuge in the small foam waves in Beginner's Corner at the far end of the beach. Another instructor took pity on me, professing his want to share the love of surfing. 
Be careful not to push on the sides of the board, the rails, as it will tip over, he said. As far as I can tell, there's not really any timeline when learning to surf. As a long-time surfer friend told me, the only way you learn to do it is just to keep doing it over and over and over. The pop-up somehow becomes instinctive. Your strength improves each time. And if you are prepared to be unceremoniously dumped on a regular basis, things progress. The final ocean curveball was the aftermath of the tsunami caused by the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai undersea volcano off Tonga. Its impact locally was devastating, and from 3,000 kilometres away, its distant power could be felt in the waves and rips on Australia's eastern seaboard. After the worst had passed, Beginner's Corner at high tide was again my refuge. In four weeks, I went from barely being able to push up to standing on most waves, admittedly not for very long. I still don't really know how it happened. Somehow I had developed instincts about where and when to push up, and my feet seemed to know where to go. I did, however, manage to pop a rib out of place on my last day surfing. It was just by jumping on the board, not wiping out. The local physio, also a surfer, told me to work on my pop-up strength before going out again. And that's really the best advice I can give anyone wanting to learn to surf. Be as strong and as fit as you can when you try it. It exposes all sorts of muscles you either never knew you had or hadn't used in ages. That was Never Ever Look Down, A Middle-Aged Guide to Catching Waves by Alison Rock. The reader was Carmelina DiGuglielmo. So as women, we're often told that having a baby is the most magical time in our life. But you know what? Sometimes it's not. Gabrielle Innes shares her experience of when things didn't quite go as she imagined. Toilet! yelled the midwife. Toilet! I was in the final stages of giving birth, and the midwife, unable to speak English and convinced I could not understand German, wanted me to push. An hour or so later, I was wheeled away, my daughter in my arms, into a dimly lit room where another mother was feeding her newborn baby. The nurse, kind but aloof, brought me a piece of white bread and cheese. They lowered the bed to flat and left me there, presumably to sleep. But I was in complete shock. My boyfriend was out on the street, unable to stay due to Berlin's COVID regulations at the time, and there was a little person on my chest who still appeared better suited to her amniotic sack than the little knitted hat the midwife had put on her. I was jerked from this stupefied state when I spilled a half-litre bottle of water all over myself, the baby, and the bed. Unable to sit up, physically exhausted, and cautious of the stitches holding me together, I found myself lying soaked in water, with my daughter going at my breast like a jackhammer, while desperately trying to figure out how to unclasp my maternity bra 
and use the hospital phone at the same time so I could ask for help in my A2 German. Ich brauche Hilfe bitte. I felt immensely overwhelmed and pathetically helpless under the sideways stare of the woman in the other bed. But there was also something else building inside me. Something that in the weeks and months to follow turned out to be what the internet called postpartum rage. When we were back in my studio apartment, back in lockdown, I continued to be agitated by what I experienced as environmental and physical microaggressions. The unrelenting heavy footsteps of my upstairs neighbour. My engorged breasts, now the size, shape and feel of gridiron footballs. The neighbour across the way blowing his nose like a trumpet day and night. An empty fridge and an each-for-their-own-trolley-ramming mentality at the supermarket. And the 32 square metres that once felt cosy, now at times unbearably small for the three of us. The only private refuge, the bathroom. Outside, things were no better. There was nowhere to go, everything closed, no cafe toilet to relieve the urgent requests of my bladder or check I hadn't bled through my maternity pad, no friends to clutch onto. The Australian border was closed, and every day it became more and more clear to me that my family and friends would not visit me and my newborn, nor I them. I felt trapped in Germany. Indeed, I was. The language more impossible than ever before. Meanwhile, I was making regular trips to the internet cafe, my daughter strapped to my body, printing out hundreds upon hundreds of pages to send to Germany's ATO, to which they would respond weeks later with yet more requests. Where did the 60 euros that was deposited into your account in June 2018 come from? Early postpartum looked nothing like what Instagram had suggested it would. I wasn't lounging in a neutral coloured linen pyjama set, eating a bowl of congee while nursing my always contented baby as my equally put-together friends looked serenely on. I was in a constant oscillation between joy and despair and anger. I was down on my hands and knees in my underwear, smelling rancid with sweat, feeding my daughter like a cow her calf, in the hope that she would suck free the blocked milk duct that was making my entire body quiver in pain. I was obsessively googling things like, should breastfeeding hurt? Can sleep deprivation kill you? Does my baby have colic? Will the Australian dollar go back up? Why am I always so angry? At night, so long those nights were, I struggled the most. As I fed my daughter, teeth clenched against the pain of yet another blocked duct, all I could hear was the gentle snoring of my boyfriend next to me. He's only breathing, I'd tell myself. He's only keeping himself alive. Occasionally I'd move violently to stir him, Other times I'd ask him to get me something, a glass of water, a tissue, pretext to wake him up. But when, with eyes closed, he'd say to me, just give me a couple of minutes to wake up. My rage didn't feel irrational at all. In the grand scheme of things, none of it was terribly bad, except maybe the sudden collective fear of door handles and other human beings. And yet... 
These moments of small discomforts, big ones compiled, left me raging, turned mostly inward, but occasionally, with great drama, turned outward. I had not expected these feelings, of course, and in contrast to the elated hormonal trip of pregnancy and the all-consuming love I felt for my daughter, this undercurrent of frustration and fury was rather vile and shameful, not to mention grotesquely ill-fitting to the image of the glowing new mother I'd been fooled into believing. And that perhaps was my undoing, expecting a one-dimensional experience when postpartum, especially in these times of prolonged isolation and uncertainty, was anything but. It was hard and it was lonely and the anger I can see now was mostly just fear, the enormous responsibility of having born a child into what feels like a very hostile world. That was postpartum rage. After giving birth, feelings of frustration and fury took me by surprise by Gabrielle Innes. The reader was Emily Elise. And if this story has raised any issues for you, support is available 24-7. Please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's it for the show today. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannon, Zoe Victoria, Najma Sambal, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Catch you then.